Happy Thursday evening, everybody. Uh, it's our 264th um, fireside chat without a fireplace. Um, and, and tonight, uh, we're actually delayed because I'm changing the format just midweek. I figured we'd take a break from our guests and during the midweek, which we used to do before all the lockdowns, and now it's getting to a place where the church is so full that it's difficult to do, but we used to have a midweek service. And so uh, it was requested that I do a couple of my messages that people have particularly enjoyed over the years. And that way uh, you can refer them to people and go back and maybe have someone listen to them. Uh, this is a message I've probably given more than any other message. And I uh, just wanted you to tune in tonight and participate in it for the simple fact that this is something that's desperately necessary right now as our nation is going through nothing we've ever experienced before. I mean, this is just, it's just odd. It's strange. Uh, and, and we're wondering every day what's transpiring. And we don't even know what to listen to or what to watch. Uh, and I honestly, um, we've already put up our website, so we're just about to shut down all my social media. And uh, I'm, I'm just going to a flip phone and, you know, I, I'm not afraid of technology. I'm just not going to be controlled or owned by it. And, um, and so we're just going to get back to simplicity. And granted, uh, we're dependent on YouTube and they may or may not take us down. Uh, so be it. We'll figure out another way around that. Um, human beings are creative and we'll get around that one way or the other. Tonight we're going to do something really old school. Uh, we're going to write. And uh, I got a whiteboard and I'm going to share with you. Uh, and here's the title of the message. And I, I've, I've taught it to tens of thousands of people across the country. I call it the most misunderstood word in the English language. It's what we want to receive and what we want to give, but we have no idea really how to articulate it and what it completely is in its fullest meaning. And, and in the English language, we only have one word for it. Of course, other languages do a better job of describing this, but it's, it's the most important emotion that mankind possesses. And that's why I call it the most misunderstood and overused word in the English language. I'll show you over here on the whiteboard. This is the big technology we have. The most misunderstood and overused word in the English language is real simple. It's love. We all want to receive it. We all want to give it. But we don't have any idea what it is. You can use the same word in two sentences and it means something totally different. For example, I can say, I love my brother and I love my wife. It doesn't mean the same thing. I mean, I've got a great brother, but not like my wife. I mean, I love my brother, but not like I love my wife. <laughs> you, you know what I'm saying. So love means something totally different, but the same word is used in both sentences. You can also say, I love my job and I love my wife. And they, they mean something totally different. They need to mean something totally different or you've got your priorities all screwed up. Yet this is what we want to receive and this is what we want to give. And in a secular progressive culture, Terms like this baffle people because they don't know why they feel these emotions. And in a strictly physical world, to have metaphysical feelings like this is hard to process for someone who dismisses God. Because there's almost this idea that there's something higher than us and we aspire to and it moves us. Um, we also call something good or something bad, something lovely, something ugly. That means there's a standard. And then who sets that standard? Well, that's, that's the interesting thing about this concept of love. Because of all the words that God could have used to describe himself, and there are many that he could use to describe himself. God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. 
Uh, he chose in 1 John 4.8, and, and I'll show you this passage, 1 John 4.8, to describe himself with this one word. He says, um, He who does not love does not know God, for God is, and there you see it, God is love. God is love. Now we hear that overused, and people say God is love, and love is God, and that's a little tricky right there, but God is love, the truest meaning of the word love. But there's, there's complexity to this word, as we've already seen in the three sentences that I've used. And for those of you who, you know, you're sweet on somebody and you're not married yet and you're considering life together and there are those of you who are struggling and you're lonely and hey, and then there's those of you who are married and there's just kind of going through the motions, it's time to revisit this. And especially in America right now, because a lot of this, it says that they'll, they'll be waning in love, in the presence of love. And, and we need a, an, in, an injection of... of of, a, of this emotion that's going to strengthen our nation and the world itself. So for us to understand the concept of love, I'm not going to use the English language. I'm going to use the language of the greatest philosophical thinkers of all time. It was the language of Plato and Aristotle and Socrates. It's Koine Greek. It's what the New Testament was written in. And when the, when the Greeks looked at the concept of love, they didn't just give one word. They ascribed many, but three in particular encapsulated the majority of the definition of this concept of love. Interestingly enough, all of them are found in one way or another, including Storge, but we're not going to cover that. All of them are found in the scriptures, and we're going to begin with the first one. And this is, this is coming from a Greek mindset, looking at the word itself prior to the writing of, of the New Testament. But when you look at this word, the first word that they gave to describe love is they said this interesting word called eros. <clears throat> and eros... Uh, has three aspects to it. Eros is a selfish love. Eros is also only for objects, never for people. Objects only. And the other part about this love is it's the love that a newborn baby has for its mother. And you're like, well, wait a minute, this is confusing. It's selfish, it's objects only, the mother's not an object, the mother's a human being. We'll get to all that. The Greeks weren't stupid. The word we get from eros in our language, fascinatingly enough, because every word in an English language has a root or a connection somewhere. Uh, and for those of you who had the chance, as I made that recommendation last night, to watch The Professor and the Madman about the Oxford Dictionary and Webster's Dictionary, done in 30 years with a Christian background, and I thank you for the viewer that pointed that out. But here they want to encapsulate the language to be able to express some of the most critical things as human beings that we possess and we need to understand together and be able to communicate. So here, eros, in the English language, we get this word erotic. So... This is a selfish love. It's all about me. And, and, it's, and, and it's a selfish love, and, and it's, it's about objects only. So uh, I, I love this blazer because it makes me look skinny. And some of you are going, no, it doesn't. Whatever. The point is, I love it because of how it makes me feel. It's an object, and I'm selfish, and it's all about me. And so that's the love, but it's also only intended for objects, never for human beings. 
But yet the Greeks said that it's the love that a newborn baby has for its mother, which is baffling because we all know the mother's a human being, not an object. But if you notice this, newborns, when, they're, when, when the mother gives birth to them, and we've had five kids, four of them were homegrown, one was grafted. Uh, we adopted our middle child, Natasha, from Russia when she was 12. And I always say that was Michelle's largest baby and longest delivery, 12 years and over 100 pounds. Um, and just, just like the other children, we didn't understand anything they were saying when they came to us. Um, and all, uh, Natasha only spoke Russian. But with the other four, they were all born from Michelle. And, and having been born from Michelle, they were all mm, over nine pounds. One was even over 10 pounds. And these are big babies. And, uh, and Michelle's labors were short. I mean, she, when she's ready to give birth, boom, done deal. And it was a Wednesday night, a midweek service where I was teaching. And as I was teaching uh, the service, they brought up a note to me and said, Michelle is ready to give birth. And I concluded the message, got in the car and sped as quick as I could. Um, and when we got there, we'd already had Molly as a child. We'd already had Kelly as a child. We'd already had Daniel as a child. So I knew how Michelle operated. And this time, Michelle was pregnant with our youngest, which is Michael. He's now mm, 20, uh, he's 19. So 19 years ago, as I was a pastor of the church, and I drive over to Los Robles Hospital, knowing how quickly my wife delivers, because I've gone through that, and we've also had, we'd had some miscarriages, and we'd been through the heartache of life together. So we get there. Um, Michelle says, it, it's, you've got to call the doctor, Dr. Van Geem. I, I'm going to have this baby any minute now. And so I went into the nurse, and I said, Nurse, uh, she's going to give birth, and you need to call Dr. Van Geem. And she looked at me like, you know, we know what we're doing here, and I really don't need your input. And, you know, she was sweet, but irritating. And she didn't call Dr. Van Geem, and I went back with the tail between my legs because I didn't accomplish what my wife asked me to do. And she says, Dr. Van Geem, coming. And I said, no, the nurse said that they'll call when it's necessary, and we'll go get her. And so I got her to come, and they went to check her. And, and the nurse was given this issue, and Michelle said, it's time. I'm going to give birth to this baby. We need Dr. Van Geem here. So I went and I got the nurse. She comes in, and she goes to check to see how dilated Michelle is. And at that moment, Michelle's water burst, splattered all over the nurse, and I kind of thought that was apropos. Uh, and, and then Michelle was in labor and delivery. Now, what's fascinating about that is... I was the only one there. The doctor wasn't there. The nurse was there, but I was the only one there to walk her through this. And I'd gone through the Lamaze training with all the other kids. I got the, all the concepts and how to help her control her breathing by looking at a candle and trying to blow it out. And I'm holding her hand and she's pushing and pushing and her face is turning purple. And, and I, I look at her and I say, honey, you've got to control your breathing. You know, remember the, the candle, you got to blow that out. And uh, she looked at me as I'm saying, honey, calm down, blow, blow out the candle. She looks at me and she says, get away from me. Yeah, joke. She didn't do that, but she knew how to give birth to that child, and she did. And the thing about Michael, and he's a beautiful child now, but that kid was born over 10 pounds, larger than any of the other kids, and the majority of his weight was in his head. This kid had a huge head, enormous. And he grew into it, thank God, because, you know, troublesome. And that boy... Uh, we took him home, and he, he, we finally got released from the hospital. We put him in the car seat, strap him in there, and he couldn't keep his head up. And as we're driving to the house, he falls asleep. He just can't keep his head up. When we get there, Michelle's exhausted, and I take Michael out of the car seat like a skilled surgeon so as not to wake him up. I tiptoe into the nursery that we just developed, you know, designed for him. I lay him in the nursery in his crib, and I go in to lay down because, you know, I'm exhausted. You know, tell Michelle to blow out the candle. I'm just exhausting. Just kidding. Honey, I'm sorry. 
And as I come in, Michelle's already sound asleep. I crawl into bed next to her. I'm out like a light. And it's REM sleep. And in the middle of that, how, 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 just REM sleep dreaming, it's two, three o'clock in the morning, and Michael starts crying. Now, nobody wakes people up that they love at two or three o'clock in the morning. Michael doesn't have a love for us. He has a need. And the need is he's hungry or he's wet. A child that age makes a noise out of either end, and it results in work for us. And so Michelle gets up to go tend to Michael. And if she had walked into his room and said, you know, Michael, it's 3 o'clock in the morning. The rest of the children are sleeping. So is your father. I want to go back to bed. I gave birth to you. You've got a huge head, and I'm recovering. And what I think you need to do, Michael, is go to bed for three more hours until the rest of us wake up, and then I'll feed you then. Michael wouldn't have a clue. He would just scream louder. Because, you see, it's all about Michael. And that's why babies can love their mothers this way. Because a baby doesn't look at the mother as a human being, but as an object for its survival. For Michelle, or excuse me, for Michael, Michelle was the milk wagon. Hook me up. This is, this is what I want. I want it now. I don't care that you've given birth to me and I have a huge head. And, and I, I don't care that it's 3 o'clock in the morning because it's all about me. So, you see, human beings can love other human beings with this love. There's just one catch. You have to reduce their intrinsic value of being the pinnacle of God's creation to that of an object. Now, some of you may not think that's a bad thing. Well, what's happened is, we, men treat women like objects, and every object comes with a price. And then when you're done with an object, you discard it and buy another one or a new model. We're not objects, we're human beings. You see. This was the lowest form of love in the Greek mindset, but it was the most it's the most prolific form of love in our culture. Everything is visual. This is visual. Everything is about me. It's selfish. Oh, what that person could do for me. And you're drawn to them because you see something that attracts you. And what they could do for you. Oh, I like that. And so that person becomes an object. But to move past this point of initial attraction, of things that you think, wow, there's something there for me, to move past that initial point, you come to this second type of love, which is called agape. Now, agape also has three aspects to it. And as you can imagine, it's the reverse of eros, so it has a selflessness to it. It's also only for humans, never for objects. And then finally, it's the mother's love for the baby. You see, at 3 o'clock in the morning, Michelle didn't go in to Michael and said, go to sleep and we'll feed you later. She picked him up and she was hurting and she was tired. She hadn't any rest. She picked that boy up. She loved on him. She changed his diaper. She fed him. And that's what you do. You see, the reason why folks don't have kids nowadays is it requires selflessness. And we love ourselves. And we want all our baubles and trinkets and surround ourselves with objects. And the funny thing is, you end up dying with objects. To die with, in the presence of people and to touch people's lives, you have to be selfless. The Bible says if a man desires friends, he must himself first be friendly. Not that we love God, but that he first loved us. You see, agape is only intended for humans. It's the mother's love for the baby. When I was... When I was a young boy driving in the car with my mother, I think back then we had a Volkswagen Bug, and 
a car would cut in front of us, and, and I was in the front seat, and back then you didn't have seatbelts. It was a wild, wild west. But my mother would do this. She would cover me. And what she was communicating to me as a little kid is that she was putting herself between me and danger. I love you more than I love myself. If anyone's going to get hurt, it's going to be me. You're going to live. It's, it's like uh, instinctual almost where you see the hen, the mother hen covering her chicks. The farmer goes out after his barns burned and he sees his prize hen burned in the carcass. And he's just disgusted and he kicks that carcass because he's lost a prize hen. And from underneath the wings of this burned out carcass come little chicks that the mother hen protected. It's a love that gives. You see, agape is the highest form of love a human being can give. The scripture says, greater love has no man than this than to lay down his life for a friend. This same word agape is used in the Bible <clears throat> where it says, for God so agape the world that he gave his only begotten son. You can't give more than your life. <clears throat> you lay it down. You say, God, I give you my life. You see, Christ died on the cross not so that men could scorn him, ridicule him, and never give their lives and understanding that he sacrificed so that we could be reconciled to the Father. He wanted us to respond. He initiated. This is a vulnerable type of love. You, you love people that don't love you back. And it hurts. Some of you have been you know, scarred by it. But it is the highest form of love you can give. <clears throat> For God so agape the world he gave his only son. And by the way, it wasn't nails that held Jesus to the cross. It was this agape love. He put himself in your place, my place. Now, that's the highest form of love a human being can give. Pay attention, then I'll give you three illustrations and we'll wrap it all up. Let me show you the third type of love. Now, people want this third type of love, but they're unwilling to do what's necessary to obtain it. You see, this is the highest form of love you can give. But what you're about to see is the highest form of love you'll ever experience. Check this out. It's called phileo. And the three aspects of it, it's a mutual love. It's only intended for humans, never for objects. And there's a formula to achieve it. A plus A equals phileo. Now, people think that the, the word Philadelphia, city of brotherly love, they think it's a brotherly love. Or, but, but actually, if you look at John 21 in the discourse with Jesus and Peter when he's restoring Peter and he keeps asking him, do you love me? He interchanges agape with phileo. And the idea of a mutual love that we find in Philippians chapter 2, Scripture says, having the same love, being of like mind, let the mind that was in Christ Jesus be in you. The Scripture says in regards to marriage, that when a man lays down his life, he finds a whole new one. Christ laid down his life. As a matter of fact, in the Western tradition, the reason why the groom comes down dressed in black is he's in his burial clothes. The bride comes dressed as white. It's a microcosmic picture of Christ's love for the church. He died that we would be cleansed of our unrighteousness. And the bride radiant comes down the aisle and he's married to her. He's the groom, we're the bride, the church. But somebody has to die. Why? Well, the wages of sin is death. We've committed cosmic treason. I mean, we want to, you know, emphasize justice in our nation, at least selective justice, but... 
from a worldly perspective, we, we still believe in some semblance of justice, even though it's skewed by our, our own definition of it as opposed to an absolute. But God is the author of justice. And he said, eating that, walking out of my presence in the Garden of Eden, dying you will surely die. It will be present and progressive. I'm going to give you a gift called time between point A, which is birth, and point B, which is death, to reconcile to me. You can come back. And there will be a sacrifice. And there will be a prototype even in the Garden of Eden. But blood must be shed for the remission of sin. Someone has to pay that penalty. If you're on death row, and I'm on death row, and we both committed murder, and it's my turn to die, and you go to the judge and you say, Judge, I want to die in their place. And the judge says, No. You've got your own trial and your own death scheduled. You're guilty. You can't die in this place. You're not innocent. You've got your own penalty to pay. I can't die for you and you can't die for me because we're all sinful. Back up. Be patient. You don't like being called a sinner. I get it. I get it. The word is an archer's term. Relax. Here's the bullseye. And where the arrow lands... And where the bullseye exists, this is called the sin distance. How far the arrow's fallen from perfection. That's it. Would it be better for you? Would you stomach it easier if I said, you're not perfect? Fair enough? Okay, good. I thought so. Yeah, we've, we've over, overblown that word, but it still exists in the scripture. Because we're accountable to God. Our founders understood that. Endowed by our Creator. You see, when we have absolutes and we're governed by a creator and realizing that we will be held accountable, we do things on this earth a lot better. When we remove a supreme being and we have no absolutes, those in power make the rules and they make them to benefit themselves. That's why in 6,000 years of recorded history, most nations are oligarchies. That's why you're watching this strangeness occurring across the land here in America where a nation conceived in liberty seems to be losing it. I've never seen this kind of censorship before in 56 years on this earth. So you have these three types of love and greater love has no man than this and to lay down his life for a friend. You see, Jesus died on the cross. He paid the penalty because the wages of sin is death. And he paid that. And having paid it, he's reconciled you to the Father. But somebody had to die because that was the penalty. And so the Lord says... The way that you come to understand one another, and the scripture says in Philippians 2, having the the same mind, being of like mind, let the mind that was in Christ Jesus be in you. Like I said, I've been on this earth 56 years. When I was younger, I I had no idea. I wasn't a Christian. I I don't remember praying with my parents or reading a Bible. But when I came to know that Christ had died for my sins, and I'd come to know that there was a Savior, and realized I was a sinner, it, it didn't take me long to realize I wasn't perfect. The things I wanted to do, I didn't do those. And those things I didn't want to do, those things I did. And even knowing they were bad for me, I still did them. And I couldn't stop doing them. I I was a slave to them. Maybe you find yourself in that picture. You can't stop doing what you know is not good for you. How's that? And so I was looking for somebody who would help deliver me from this misery. And then I was introduced to Christ through a friend. As they shared the idea that he died on a cross, that I would know the truth, and the truth would set me free from the law of sin and death by the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, I was blessed by that. But it required something. You see, when Jesus died on a cross, he expressed 
agape love. Greater love has no man than this than to lay down his life for a friend. While we were yet sinners, we weren't even friends, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for me when I hated him. Let me correct that. He died for me when I didn't even give him the time of day or care. He, he, you know, I'm breathing his air, living on his dirt, breathing his air, eating his food. He's, he's keeping my heart beating and my lungs moving, and he's designed me and fashioned me, and before I was born, he knew me. He's given me the laws of nature, and he's allowed me to understand all these things, give me a mind, and, and, and here I would, I would go after what I want, and all it did was put me in a prison of addiction. I couldn't get out, and I realized it wasn't good for me. Sin is pleasurable for a season. Look, I remember the first time that I'd ruptured a disc in my back. I could barely walk. I was in so much pain. I, I'd been a swimmer, a, a nationally ranked swimmer. I, I knew pain. I knew how to push my body, but this, this was awful. I had to crawl on all fours into the hospital. And when I got there, I'll never forget, they gave me a shot of morphine. I'll tell you what, at that moment when they gave me morphine, I thought if everyone were on this, there'd be world peace. Well, sin is pleasurable for a season. The drug wears off, and where it picked you up, it leaves you further back than where it started. And then you need more to get less of a return on your investment, and next thing you know, you're enslaved to it. And you're selling everything and denying every relationship you have because you're in a prison where you're dying and the host is devouring you. You see, Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He's an enemy. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. He promises everything. He promises an easy way out. The end in there is death. Now. We've abandoned that. We think we can survive as secular progressives, abandon the existence of God, forget about moral absolutes. But then we come back to this stupid metaphysical concept of love. And we want meaning when we're looking at a sunset. And it just hits us in the loneliness and the depression when we think, well, wait a minute, there's no such thing as love. I'm just matter. I'm just matter and I'm going to dissipate and turn into nothing. But we all know that we're accountable to somebody. We all know design. We all know order. We look out, we see the four seasons and the, the summer, you know, spring, fall, winter, all those working. You see a child being born. You see the intricacies of a human cell. You marvel at the designer. But then you say, well, no, no, we're going to remove that and just say it's, you know, chance. Even looking at numbers, even at looking at those types of things, the chance... I mean, you just keep adding zeros to it. And so we come to a place that there's either a God or there isn't. And if there is a God, we're accountable to him. And if there isn't a God, those who are in charge make the rules. And that's where we are today. And that's why we need an infusion of love. We need to understand that love is achieved by service and laying your life down. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. He laid his life down. He died on a cross in our place. And what happens is, when I gave my heart to the Lord that day, He changed me from the inside out. He said, Rob, I give you my life, and I'm going to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And my response was, Lord, you love me that way, I want to love you back. You see, I want to give you my life. The Apostle Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. I, I give you my life, Lord, to will and to do as your good pleasure. I'm here to serve you. I'm only on this earth for a dash between birth and death, that dash on the tombstone, I know I'm going to stand before you. You're the creator of, of the universe. And it's appointed once for man to die, then judgment. And I have to give an account to you. So I want to make sure I'm doing it right. And it's not about me. It's about others. And I want to leave this nation better than I found it. And I don't want to make it about me or enslavement of other human beings. I want to see them as Imago Dei, created in your image. How can I facilitate and help mankind? And so we pursue that. 
And here's how it works. This is selfish. This is selfless. And the way to obtain this great expression of phileo, this mutual love, is, as I said here, A plus A equals phileo. Now, you wonder, what is that? Agape plus agape equals phileo. In marriage, you lay your life down, literally and figuratively. My wife and I, seriously, I, we're, we're two different human beings. Now, I know in the secular progressive world they want to rechange the family structure and redesign natural law and say there's multiple types of genders and somehow we're evolving, which is, you know, you used to be a ward on the side of something and then you evolved and, uh, yeah. It takes a lot of faith to buy that. But to say God created and we're accountable to Him, that's troublesome. There's a lot more ability to understand that, but it's troublesome because it means you are now in submission and you have to give an account. And if you want to keep him in the back burner so that you can justify enslaving people and dismissing 75 million of them as though uh, they're just stupid, you know, flyover country and they're all idiots. And they love their God and they love their guns. Well, that's troublesome. It's problematic. Because one day you will be with the Lord and you'll realize, look, once you die, trust me, you'll believe in God regardless of who you are right now. But I would prefer that you do it now because it's appointed once for a man to die, then judgment. We're given grace. We've already committed cosmic treason. He's given us a gift that we're to receive before we step off this earth and we're to receive that gift to make a difference. And we've come that we might have life. And we need to pursue that and contend for it on this. And you say, well, why would God allow suffering? Why would He allow evil? Well, if he's to remove evil and suffering, he, re he needs to remove the source of that. And that would be human beings. But he's patient and long-suffering, wanting that none would perish, but that all would be saved. And we can be that preservative to help people live together underneath this, this idea of mutual respect and realizing that we're accountable to God and accountable to each other. But if too much of this comes in, we find ourselves enslaved and abusive to other human beings. And how do we resolve that? We learn how to serve and lay our life down. And some of you are going, great, you serve me. Yeah, well, it doesn't work that way. You're trapped over here. You know, it's like a cancer. You, you, you can, it's like what uh, Margaret Thatcher said. Socialism works until you run out of the other person's money. You can take and take and take until the, the host is dead. And then you move on to another host. And then the next thing you know, cancer has consumed you. And it's just a massive cell that ends up having nothing to feed on. What you want to do is develop and create. An agape is when you lay your life down. So, not that we love God, but that He first loved us. He laid His life down. We responded. He gave us His life. We said, Lord, I give you my life. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins and forgiving me of all unrighteousness. And then you're reconciled. And then you have the same love. Lord, I, I want to think like you. I, I want to operate like you. I want to see the world through your eyes. And it's the same thing in marriage. You know, I, I saw Michelle and I thought, I, I'm so in love with this woman, I want to give her my life. I want to serve her. And I've, I've been trying to do that for 30 years. But the difficulty, talk about the difficulty. Men and women are so uniquely different. I live in my head. I say very few words. Now, granted, some of you are going, ah, I don't buy that because you're always talking. I talk when I'm in front of a camera. I talk when I'm in front of people. But when I'm at home or I'm in my office, I, I live in my head. 
I'm always formulating thoughts and I, I don't have a lot of words. My wife uses more words, but she's expressive and she goes into detail. Detail and minutia that I don't even spend time considering. But I tell you, when you go for a drive or you go on vacation through the eyes of my wife, the vacation is much more enjoyable because she's seeing things that I just dismiss because I'm trying to get from point A to point B and accomplish a task. And she said, we're not at war, we're going on vacation. And I'm like, well, okay. And it's, it's fun that when the children were young, they'd come to Michelle with the painting that they'd done. And if they came to me, I'd go, what's wrong with you? This thing, it's just a bunch of colors. You don't make any sense. And my wife would look at it and she'd say, I see what you've done here. And she would start to talk with them because she's taken time to get to know them. And, and there's a tender side that is developed in me as I start to lay down my life to understand her. And then she starts to under, and it's this beautiful picture where we become mutual, it, this mutual love. We've been married 30 years. We can be in a, 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 a room crowded with people. It could be her birthday. And she could be opening up gifts and none of you in the room would have a clue. But I'd know whether she loved that gift or hated it. That's where the two become one flesh. It's the highest form of love a human being can experience, this phileo, because you can only obtain it when you're selfless and you serve somebody. That's why divorce is rampant. I mean, there are people that want to serve one another, but there are people that just want to take. And you serve them, and you serve them, and you serve them. Some people can endure that. But it just doesn't seem like they ever come to a place where they get what Christ did, because the only way to accomplish a successful marriage is to realize it's a microcosmic picture of what Christ already did for us. So, reconnect with the Lord. I mean, you invited Him to the wedding, invite Him to the marriage. Maybe you did invite Him to the wedding. Invite Him to both. Well, let me wrap it up with this. I, my mom and dad were good people. My dad was a naval officer. My, um, my dad was a naval officer. My mom uh, was president of Republican Women. They were service-oriented. My mother would take me every Sunday to the rest home to go visit folks that had no relatives visiting them. Most of them, you know, had dementia. And, and it was kind of odd to me as a young kid. And I remember one woman, I'd sit next to her. My mother would make me sit next to her while she went and checked on my great uncle, who was also there. But then she would make me visit all these elderly folks. And she had all their names down. She'd bring them all a little gift. Most of them didn't know that she'd even come in. But this one woman, I would sit next to her, and she'd grab my hand, and she would just you know, go like this to each finger and then repeat it. And she would just do this endlessly. And, and, and it would calm her down and she, I, I, I didn't understand that world. To me, they were elderly and they smelled and I wanted to go throw the football somewhere. I didn't value them. My mother did. She taught me how to value them. She taught me how to sit with folks who have lived many, many years and repeat themselves with stories you've heard over and over and over again. But about the 15th time, the 20th time, there's a nuance and a nugget in there you never saw before, which is remarkable. My mom taught me that. And I'll tell you what, you can get bored and walk away and dismiss them and put them in a home. But you see, God created it through the expanse of time that all of us would benefit from serving one another, especially in our most difficult times. Infants, children, elderly adults, they all need those to serve them. But we kind of kick everybody to the side when it gets to that time. That's why rest homes are empty. We don't want to hear from you until we get your money. It's tragic. That's because we're all about eros, selfish. The world needs more of selflessness and service.
People enter into government because it's power, not truth, power. They want to rule over people. It used to be called public servants, but not anymore. But my parents were good people, and they taught me how to serve. Now, I grew up full of myself. I was a lifeguard on the beaches in San Diego. Um, I don't remember having a talk with my dad about any of these things. I, I just remember I met a girl on the beach, and uh, I was a lifeguard, and it was a veritable plethora, a smorgasbord. And I was young, and there was girls to meet and dates to go on, and add a little alcohol to that, even though I wasn't old enough to drink. Coronado was just a few miles from the Mexican border. Well, I met one girl in particular, and she was visiting from another place in the state of California. And uh, I just kept saying as we would go out, you know, when are we, uh, we going to get to that place where we're going to, you know, I have to be careful because I don't know who's watching this thing, but I don't want to be a prude. When are we going to sleep together? And she said, you know, I'm saving myself for the man that loves me. Well, that's easy. I mean, I've heard that word before. I've heard it on television. I mean, there's a lot of things I love. You know, I love to go to the beach. And I can say to you, I love you. How do you want me to say it? I love you. I love you. I love you. If that's all I got to say to get what I want, well, that object doesn't have much of a price. And I said what she wanted to hear and got what I wanted. And when you treat someone like an object, you reduce your value because you've been created in, their, in the image of God and we're all in that idea. When you reduce the value of humanity, you reduce your value. You start seeing people as objects. You lessen them. And the beautiful thing about this idea of Christendom is it elevates humanity. Well, that summer was a dark one for me because it was all about me. And I, I hurt that girl's feelings. We broke up and she went back to her home in the other city in California. And I went back to being a jerk being a lifeguard. And I got a call and she said, I'm pregnant. And I said, well, we'll deal with it when, you know, uh, when I see you. Well, I took some money that I had saved up. I set an appointment for the abortion clinic and we were going to go. And I didn't know anything about the Lord at the time. And I remember I call her up and I say, I, I got the appointment all set for Friday. And she said, I'm not pregnant and I don't need to go into detail. And if you struggle with how that's possible, talk to your um, wife or someone who understands what happens. And so I said, well, I'll see you later. And she said, no, you aren't. You're a jerk. And I said, you know what? So are you. And, and that was the end of it. And I went back to being selfish. And it was all about me. People were objects for my pleasure. And, and it led to abuses that would enslave me to try to quell the emptiness. I, I don't know if you've ever looked into a mirror and wonder who you're looking at. And you just see an empty void of a face. And you're saying, who is that? Because you don't know who you are. You've crossed so many lines you said you never were, would. And you wake up going, who am I? And what do I stand for? And what is life about? And, and you can't drink it away. You can't sex it away. You can't drug it away. And next thing you know, you're enslaved and you're miserable. And you just, you don't like who you are. And then you watch a sunset and you think, there's got to be something more. I mean, even a child, when they stub their toe, they cry up for someone bigger to help them. And it's in our weakness that God's strength is made perfect. And I remember saying a little prayer like, you know, this is terrible. I'm not sure who you are, or where you exist, but I could use some help here. Well, you know, the help came in the form of a friend who said, you know what, you're a jerk. You treat people like objects. And you need to change. You need to start serving people and loving people. 
I said, how do I do that? He started talking to me about the Lord. And I had a swim coach, Mike, um, Bill Stees, who shared Christ with me. I'd, I'd done terrible in a swim meet. We were, we were uh, processing the, the race itself. And he said, you know what, Rob? More than swimming and everything else in life, you, you need to be reconciled to God. And he started to share with me. Now, he'd probably be in jail today for sharing Christ, but he did that for me. Changed my life. I gave my heart to the Lord and I said, you know what, God? I, I want to serve people. Whatever's left, I, I, I want to lay my life down for them and serve them. God was faithful. I mean, I went through some bumps in the road and some I've shared. I, I did this last Sunday about a bump in the road and how God, even in the midst of our failure, He uses it together for good when we give it to Him. When we're honest with God, He's merciful with us. But I will say this, in spite of all my failure and asking God to change me and the work He begun, He's faithful to complete. And I'm still a work in progress. And I got all you beat when it comes to sin, but I will say this, I serve a great sin, uh, Savior. I'm a great sinner, but I serve a great Savior. The only thing I'm really good at is sinning. Anything good in my life is what Jesus has done. And I, I mean that because you talk to anyone who knew me before I knew the Lord, they'll say the same thing. My wife has seen the progression of my life. And I remember when Michelle and I married, and, and I, I wasn't worried um, about pregnancy. And, you know... I was scared that she was pregnant. My, my, my girlfriend that I'd met on the beach, I was scared that she was pregnant because her dad was this big old guy and, and he looked like he was in the mafia. And, and if he found out his daughter is pregnant and I'm responsible, he'd kill me. And then my dad, he would probably resurrect me and then he'd kill me again. I was scared. I, I was going to hide all of the consequences of what I'd done. I didn't see that as a baby. I saw that as an inconvenience. And, and I was going to get rid of it because it was all about me. I'm Eros. And when she said she wasn't pregnant, that just exposed, you know, who I was. Selfish. Well, after I'd given my heart to the Lord and I meet this precious godly woman, Michelle, I, I, I've never met anyone like her before and since. I, I, I love this woman. And those of you who had the privilege of meeting her, you'll see why. She's precious. And I remember when she came to me and she said, I'm pregnant. I mean, she was like fertile myrtle. We had, we had been married April 21st, 1990, and within a few days, she's pregnant. I mean, I just looked at her and she got pregnant. And she said, I'm pregnant. I was so excited. And I, I'd never been through this before. I'm watching her body change and her processing all these things. And we're going to the doctor's office for the checkup. And, you know, I had a little biology, but I'm trying to figure all this out. The one thing that I could figure out is naming the child. If it's a boy, we know, you know. Yeah, well, we'd, we'd come up with names for boys and girls. We were going to find out the sex of the baby. And Dr. Therese Avance, and we were living in Redlands at the time, Dr. Therese Avance at Loma Linda University um, Medical Facility, godly woman, great, great doctor. She's working the ultrasound device on my wife's stomach to find out the sex of the child. And we we're thrilled. It was just beside ourselves. And I'm looking at Michelle, and I'm thinking if it's a boy and a girl, and names picked out. And I look over at Dr. Avance, and she's weeping, and her eyes are welled up with tears. And I go, Dr. Avance, why are you crying? And she looked at me, and she looked down at Michelle, and gravity took the tears. And she said, Michelle, Rob, I'm sorry, but your baby's died. Heartbeat was gone. Michelle squeezed my hand so tight, you know, I just, I thought she was going to break my fingers. And we cried. She had to go in for a procedure called a DNC, I think it's a dilatant cuterage, which same procedure as an abortion, but in this case our baby was already dead where they tear apart the fetus and clear out. Well, 
Dr. Avance proceeds with this procedure that's supposed to be routine. Any 15-year-old in California can receive it without their parents' permission, uh, female. This routine procedure almost killed my wife, and it was performed by an amazing doctor. She began to hemorrhage. I don't know what had occurred, but Michelle began to hemorrhage, and she was bleeding out. And she has a she has a blood type that doesn't reflect her personality. Uh, her blood types be negative. <laughs> she's positive, personality-wise. And as she's bleeding out, Dr. Avance begins to rush her to ICU, and I could tell through her eyes, and she had a mask on that something was terribly wrong. And when I saw Michelle, she was so ashen gray. And as a minister, look, I've, I've done funerals. I've, I've been around dead people. I've seen people pass. I've been with them at their bedside, hundreds. I know what dead people look like. Michelle went by me. She was so gray, I couldn't tell where her face ended and her lips began. I thought she was dying. I sat down on the chair. And I remember just saying, God, I don't want to do this without her. I love that woman. I've never met anyone like her. God, please save her. Please. And I realized at that moment, I love somebody more than I love myself. That's a novel concept. God had given me that love. And I remember when they'd stabilized her and I got to go in and see her. She was still unconscious and she was pale. She had tubes running in and out of her body and her hair was thrashed and her lips were cracked from dehydration. She had one of those ugly hospital gowns on, no makeup. She would have never made it on the cover of any glamour magazine. But she was the most beautiful woman I'd ever seen. I remember holding her hand and it was cold. And I remember they, we were struggling over whether or not to give her a transfusion and that was back when we didn't know what was in the blood system. And we, I just remember saying, I love you. And I got choked up. I still get choked up when I think of that day. And then the Lord spoke to me and I'll leave you with this. The Lord said, Rob, and, and by the way, it wasn't an audible voice. When you give your heart to the Lord, you'll come to understand what I speak of. He knows how to speak to His creation. He knows how to get our attention. And it just all came to this understanding. He said, Rob, why are you so sad? And I said, God, our babies died. And my wife almost died. And I'm heartbroken. Yeah, but... You weren't upset when you were ready to kill the other baby that the previous girl you thought was pregnant with. You'd set up an appointment. What's the difference between that child and this one? He said, what's the difference? I said, well, Lord, that baby was all about me. I'd get rid of that inconvenience if it meant protecting myself from being up being beaten up by her big father and then resurrected me and beaten up by my dad. It was all about me, Lord. I didn't come to serve anybody but me. And I'd, I'd kill that baby. But this baby, I'd given my life away in agape. And I have to say something to y'all, and you'll get it. I was a free and easy lifeguard smorgasbord and plethora and empty and miserable because even though I thought I had freedom I was in bondage to the least common denominator and I was in the abyss of Eros and there it, it just it's endless 
You'll never be satiated if it's all about you until you've destroyed everything around you. But over here, it wasn't about me. I'd given my life away. And as painful as this day was when I lost my baby and I almost lost my wife, I wouldn't give up one day of this for a thousand of these. Because on this day, I felt more loved and more human than I ever had in my whole life. Human requires pain. This is a fallen world with selfish people that hurt. But if we remove sin, we have to remove the source of that, and that's sinners. And God lets us remain so that we can make a difference. And so now you want to quit. Now you're upset about the condition of the nation. That's selfish. It's never been about you, and it never has been about you. I want to show you out of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, I want to show you four verses. Actually, four portions of one verse. I'm going to show you, I think it's verse 7 and 17. I don't know. Take a look. Let's bring it up on the screen. 1 Corinthians 13, 7. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Let's go back, go back, go back. Thanks. Love endures all things. Now stop there. Go back when you get a chance and read 1 Corinthians 13, 7 and 13. And the reason why is you just keep it on the screen here. You don't need to picture me. I just want to talk about the verse here. It begins by saying love does all that. To bear all these things, you're going through these trials. God gives you a selflessness to be able to do it. Not the eros selfishness, the agape. He came that we might have life. You are instruments on this earth of selflessness. And you lay down your life to serve humanity. And you believe all things. You don't believe a lie. You, you believe the truth even when everyone is lying and telling you there is no God. Even though they control the airwaves, even though they control all that, even though it is not popular and you are ridiculed, you hold to the truth that the truth would set you free. And, and then you hope all things. No, not, not the hopium that we've been speaking of, that everyone is pushing through the internet like I covered on Sunday morning. Not hopium. Not that our salvation is coming on Air Force One. Look, we participate in government of the people, by the people, and for the people. I am engaged in the public square. I vote and I am a citizen and it is very important for every one of us to be engaged. But at the end of the day, you know if this is an idol because did you lose sight of the fact that God is in control and maybe what He's doing is bigger than all the things you thought were going to transpire in your favor? Align yourself with Him and understand His ways. And you wait and you hope and you endure all things. These are trials. These are difficulties. Yeah, some children are born in a time of war, others in a time of peace. But take a look at verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 13. Now abide faith, hope, love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. It begins with faith. You trust the Lord, which I did when someone shared with me about Christ. It changed my life. And all of a sudden, I had hope. I had a hope of a future. I had a hope secured for a purpose and what I was going to do in life. But there are times where you just get kicked in the stomach and the seasons of life and the pain of living on this earth filled with people that are consumed with themselves and wanting to enslave others. You get discouraged. And then you realize... Not only is there faith, and not only is there hope, but there's love. Not a selfish love, but a selfless love. That I'm on this earth to serve. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, be a servant of all.
That's what Jesus did. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for the many. There will be no other motivation other than to enslave human beings and make up your own rules. And whatever benefits you. And that's all selfish. We went through these words. America needs an awakening. Not only does God love you, He wants to forgive you, and then He wants to live in you and give you that love and change you from the inside out. He can take a selfish lifeguard who's all about pleasure and leaving a trail of broken hearts and devastating humanity and not caring a thing about a baby and living all for me, no matter the hurt. And he can turn him into a husband of faithfulness of 30 years, five kids, three grandkids. I'm more in love with Michelle than I've ever been. I'm no perfect husband. But I certainly would tell you this. I would have never been who I am today without Christ. Every failure I've accomplished in my life, I take full credit for. But anything good in my life, that's the Lord. That's the Lord. I, I didn't bring anything to the table. My talent didn't get us here. There's a lot of talented people who were dead because they were enslaved and couldn't get out. And the Lord delivered me. Call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. He's come that you might have life and life more abundant. He loved you so much, He died in your place. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that He first loved us. And you need to respond to that agape love. He laid down His life. Lay yours down. Be of like mind. Experience that mutual understanding of what God desires of your life. And then all of a sudden, you'll have that faith. You'll have that hope. You'll have that meaning. You'll have that love. It is critical. You can only watch the news channel so long until you are burned out. You've put your hope in everything other than the God of the universe who loved you more than anyone ever will. It's time to return to him. And he's the one that can equip you to make a difference on this big blue marble. There you have it. That's your Wednesday night teaching from the scriptures. Thanks for joining us. I'll see you tomorrow night. And by the way, tomorrow night... Um, Pastor Rick is in San Jose, and tomorrow night, Mike McClure, the pastor of Calvary Chapel San Jose, is facing now over a million dollars in fines, and now they've come after and given him personally a fine and his assistant pastor fine. I think he's at 25000 his assistant pastor is eighteen. It is out of control. So tune in tomorrow night because Rick's up there ministering to him, and we're doing our best to bless him as well. And so you, you will hear from Pastor Rick. He'll go through everything that's going up uh, on up in San Jose. And then uh, don't forget this Sunday, Charlie Kirk and Sean Foyt. It's going to be a phenomenal weekend. I hope you all can join us. And now let's close with the blessing out of numbers. May the Lord bless you and keep you. And may the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Well, thanks everybody for joining us. I hope you liked the format. If you didn't, ah, it's only once a week. God bless you. Good night, everybody.